Well, good morning, everyone. My name's Brad, and um, how many of you have been watching the Olympics religiously? Yeah? Not religiously, okay. Um, Dave Smethers and I were talking a little bit this morning about things in the Olympics that we're not convinced should be sports. I don't know if you are like that, but um, some of them are a little bit surprising that things are a part of the Olympics. So one of those things for you might be sailing. I don't know if you watched any sailing on the Olympics. You probably didn't because they don't actually really do a good job of broadcasting sailing in the Olympics. But sailing's been an Olympic sport since 1900. It's like, uh, and it was one of the first sports that was actually men and women doing together. Uh, and so it's been, it has this massive tradition in the Olympic movement. And there's actually 10 of the events in the Olympics are sailing events. So like 30 medals in total go to sailing and sailors in the Olympics. Yeah, you want to know how many Canada won of them? None. <laughs> we got no medals in this, which to me is a little bit surprising because it's not like we don't have bodies of water in this country that we could sail on, but we got Nothing in sailing this time. Now, I think if there was a sport that I could be uh, come an Olympian in, it might actually be sailing. Like, I'm never going to be a sprinter. I'm never going to take up water polo, you know, or any of those types of things. But I might be able to become an Olympian in sailing because when I was a teenager, I uh, took sailing courses, actually. I passed over three summers my white sail one, white sail two, and white sail three, which means I have the ability or I have been in the same class of boat as these athletes have been in, and I have actually not capsized it. That's what you have to do to pass your white sail three. And I looked up the average age of the sailing Olympians, and they're old. <laughs> like, a lot of them didn't take up sailing till they were, like, older than I was. And so I think there's still a chance for me in the Olympics, if I ever wanted to pursue it, to get real focused on sailing and become an Olympian. But then I actually watched them sail. And I realized, oh, this is much more complicated than White Sail 3. <laughs> the level of skill tactically that they have to possess actually makes it kind of an Olympic sport, I think, <laughs> borderline. But these people are good. Like, they are really good at what they do. Because sailing is actually an interesting thing because everybody has the exact same equipment, the boats. Everybody has the same conditions that they're working in, in terms of wind and water conditions, all of those things. So really, it's not about athleticism, it's about tactics. It's about their decision-making in the water. And the better you are at that, then the more chances you are to meddle. And the tactics for sailing are a little bit complicated because it comes down to navigational smarts. Because it's not like a sprint, right? In a sprint, you're here at the starting line, the finish line is ahead of you, you run towards it, whoever's the fastest across it is the winner. In sailing, 
then the course is actually fairly complicated. You go out and you go around. Look at this diagram. You sail around a corner and then you make this series of fairly complicated turns. So you're going out and then around and then you go back and around again in this really tight circle where everybody else is still going in that little environment. And so you have to weave in and out of all of these things. Now picture if the, in this diagram, this is the diagram of the Olympic course they had in Rio. And uh, they, if the wind is coming from left to right on this, imagine now there's points in it where now you're sailing directly into the wind. And so you can't just point your boat and keep going in this direction. It's not a speedboat. You have to accommodate for wind, for tidal influences, for all of the things that are unique to that. So you might round that first buoy, and then you might have to go way off, off in a totally different direction, and then be able to, it's called tack, back towards that particular buoy. And this series of complicated turns in sailing, this zigzagging, is actually what sets apart good sailors and Olympic sailors from somebody like me, who just passed his white sail three. This ability to work with the wind conditions and actually navigate your boat through all of the other boats and make these decisions as to where you're going to go is what's actually impressive when you watch it. Because they have to continuously come about and they have to jump across their boat and make sure that the weight is just right. And sometimes it doesn't work out. Sometimes their equipment fails them. Sometimes you make a bad choice on how far out you're going to tack. Sometimes other people zig in front of you. And medal winning actually comes down to just the ability to make good navigational choices based on the complex and unique set of circumstances that are the wind conditions and the water conditions on that day and also your ability to not swallow any of the water in Rio and get sick. <laughs> but sailing like that, making those complicated decisions actually reflects our lives in a lot of ways because each day, each season, you and I have a whole series of decisions that we make, all kinds of choices that we could make. Multiple responses to any given situation that comes into our lives. And so just like sailors have the capacity and decision making to go, okay, if this is what I'm faced with, which direction am I going to head in? We need to do the same thing, which is why we need wisdom. And that's why we spent our summer series in the book of 1 Kings and in Proverbs looking at what are the characteristics of wisdom and how do we go about taking it into our lives? We've been exploring the life of Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. And Solomon's life and his writings serve as a kind of guide for us to make navigational choices. Because the real heart of wisdom is that it allows you to navigate life's complicated situations well. That's what wisdom is all about. Why bother with all of this stuff about wisdom for the whole summer? Gaining wisdom will help you navigate life's many complex situations well. And here's the thing. When you take up sailing and pursue your own Olympic calling, you can't just hand a sailor a book about the sea and say, in this is everything you need to know about sailing. 
Because once you get out onto the water, you need to have the smarts and the wits and the capacity to make decisions based on circumstances that are always changing around you. And so how the other boats influence your decision-making, how the wind is blowing relative to land on that specific day. And similarly, wisdom is not just following a mechanical set of rules that are going to work for you in every situation that you memorize. Wisdom is like a complex set of values and relationships and priorities that you begin to internalize in your life. And that becomes a guiding force in your decision-making, and that is wisdom. Author and pastor uh, Timothy Keller, when discussing the book of Proverbs as wisdom, puts it this way. He says, it's the difference between rules and values. The Bible doesn't give us so much hard and fast rules as Proverbs. Motives, goals, and values that have to be applied with wisdom to situations in the world. And that wisdom happens more through communal reflection on Scripture, especially when it comes to a text like Proverbs. This is why the Proverbs sometimes seem to contradict each other. Sometimes one proverb will say, you know, you should get up really early in the morning and work really hard. And the next proverb will say, don't get up too early in the morning, otherwise you might peter out before the end of the day. And this is why it needs wisdom. Each particular situation that you come across will require you to assess the situation and then make a decision about the direction in which you're going to go. And that is why we need wisdom. And so that's what we did last weekend. We opened it up. We put it on practice uh, for us right here in the context of our Sunday morning. So we asked for people to say, hey, here's a struggle that I'm facing that I need wisdom in. And some of you said, hey, I'm, I'm willing to share that with the community. And so we prayed for and asked God for wisdom for Daryl and for Jody. And many of the rest of you are thinking, boy, I would love people to do that with me. And that's one of the reasons why in our Sunday mornings, we always have prayer response people that are ready to pray with you. So that if you say, you know, I just love somebody to sit with me and listen and ask for God's wisdom in this particular situation in my life, we would love to do that with you as we come to the end of our morning and the teaching time. And this is why we've used the imagery of building or building blocks to talk about and describe the way that biblical wisdom kind of comes together and layers together in our lives. Because we need to learn not just to apply disembodied principles to our lives and situations that we face, but we actually need to do that in the context of relationships. And so this morning, we're going to look at Proverbs chapter 1. And we're going to see that wisdom has many friends associated with it, many relationships that come along with wisdom that are helpful and wise for us to pursue. And it also has many enemies, many things that can block or prevent wisdom from coming into your life and mine. So turn with me in your Bible or on your device to Proverbs chapter 1, and we will dive in together. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, starts this way in the New Living Translation. These are the Proverbs of Solomon, David's son, king of Israel, wisest man who ever lived. Their purpose is to teach people wisdom and discipline to help them understand the insights of the wise. 
their purpose is to teach people to live disciplined and successful lives to help them do what is right and just and fair. These Proverbs will give insight to the simple, knowledge and discernment to the young. Two weeks ago, we talked about the benefits, the incredible benefits of wisdom coming into your life. And right here at the beginning of the book of Proverbs, they're highlighted for us again. Getting wisdom is going to help you succeed in life. You're going to make wise decisions, which will then lead you through the complicated set of circumstances of life to an outcome in partnership with God as you listen to the Holy Spirit. And so wisdom that's from above is going to help you succeed in your life. And this is true because there are three friends of wisdom that are highlighted in this chapter, or three benefits that Solomon talks about that come your way when you make a commitment to acquire wisdom. The first benefit we see is in verse 5, the very next verse, which says, let the wise listen to these proverbs and become even wiser. Let those with understanding receive guidance. Or the first friend of wisdom is something we'll call compound wisdom. Now, some of you might be familiar with the principle or the concept of compound interest. This is a standard economics 101 kind of principle. So compound interest is the idea that when you invest a sum of money and you earn interest, instead of taking that interest out and cashing it out and saying, woohoo, I got some interest, I made some money, you leave it in. And so the next time you gain interest, you gain interest not only on the principal, your original amount, but also on the interest that you earned because you left it in there. So over time, your principal doesn't just grow, it grows at an increasing rate. So this chart illustrates for us what it would look like if you took $1,000 and invested at a 10% uh, rate of return. Let's just pretend that's possible in today's economic conditions. <clears throat> just keeps the math nice and simple. And let's say you left it over 20 years. So if you just, every time that interest was paid, you took that interest out, you would end up where the red line is. So yeah, you'd get money and you'd actually triple over 20 years your original investment at 10%, right? You get about, just about $3,000 or so. So you did really well. But if you left that interest every time it was paid to you to build on the principal, suddenly you're getting compound interest and over time that's growing fast. Sue, you work in banking. Am I getting this right? Is this about how compound interest works? All right, good. The chart is validated by HSBC as an official <laughs> representation of compound interest at 10% over 20 years. It's just math. So what about wisdom then? See, Proverbs 1.5 says that wisdom... If you let wisdom into your life and you layer it in there and you're willing to continue to receive guidance and understanding in your life, you will become wiser and wiser and wiser over time. Your wisdom is actually going to compound and it's going to grow. And that's why economics always tells you you need to start early on the financial front. And the same thing is actually true for wisdom. Because as you build wisdom into your life early and you actually listen to what it is that God is teaching you, 
over time and you make that commitment to seek it out early in your life and you let it grow at an increasing rate over time and you don't just say, oh, you know what? I have maxed out on the whole wisdom thing. I've got some mileage now. I don't need wisdom in the same way that I used to need it. I have all the wisdom that I need. Oh, now you're not actually letting compound wisdom continue to, to grow in your heart. You keep on pressing in and learning and growing and seeking wisdom. And it compounds over time. And so the first friend of wisdom is compound wisdom. Let the wise listen and become even wiser. Let those with understanding receive guidance. So the first friend is the benefit of compound wisdom. So the second friend of wisdom, look with me at verse 7. Verse 7 says, the fear of the Lord is the foundation of true knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. And so the second friend of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Now, a lot of times when the Bible talks about wisdom, right away, it introduces this concept of the fear of the Lord and this phrase, the fear of the Lord. Now, Pastor Mike talked a few weeks ago about what this actually means. You see, the fear of the Lord is not the same thing as being afraid of God. That's not what the text is talking about. When it uses the phrase, the fear of the Lord, it's talking about an appropriate reverence that is due to God because of who God is as holy, as creator, as king, and Lord over all. And that appropriate reverence is expressed in submission and in obedience. So the fear of the Lord is not being afraid or scared of God. It's appropriate reverence for God expressed in submission and obedience. So why is the fear of the Lord necessary for us to grow in wisdom? Why, when the scripture talks about wisdom, does it immediately introduce this concept, the fear of the Lord? Well, we've already established that wisdom is a gift from God that he desires to give and pour out. And so when it comes to God giving us wisdom and asking for wisdom, remember the book of James chapter 1 says, when you ask for wisdom from God, you need to be sure that you're approaching God in the right way. You need to approach God in faith with a right understanding of who it is that you're in conversation with. You need to be sure, James 1 says, that our faith is in God alone. James uses the language of you need to have an undivided loyalty. And if we don't, then James introduces sailing language. And he says, if you don't, when you ask God for wisdom and you think, well, I'll see, I'll just try and see if God, hey, God, just some wisdom maybe. I'm going to try a whole bunch of other stuff, but maybe I'll just sprinkle a little bit of Jesus dust in this whole conversation and see if that could sparkle some wisdom for me. James says, if you do that, that's like an undivided heart, and you're like a wave on the sea. You're kind of blown and tossed by whatever fad you're kind of consumed with in that particular phrase and phase of your decision-making. If you doubt God's goodness and his power and his ability to pour wisdom into your life, then you're like a wave of the sea that's blown by the wind. Then you shouldn't expect to receive wisdom from the Lord because you're not asking with a sense of reverence for God expressed in submission 
and also a willing heart to actually do what it is that God says for you to do. Obedience is wrapped up in that notion of the fear of the Lord. And sometimes I get a little bit concerned for us as North American Christians because we're pretty casual a lot of times in our approach to God. We kind of saunter into the presence of the Almighty and say the creator of heaven and earth, the one who hung all of the stars in the place, and we're like, sup, God. And, you know, there should be obviously an appropriate balance between a sense of intimate relationship and friendship with God, where Jesus was clear when he talked with his disciples, I don't call you servants and slaves. You're not cowering, you're friends. But also an appropriate level of reverence and awe in God's nature and his character. He's holy. He's righteous. He deserves and commands our respect. And so the second friend of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, that we approach God rightly, that we come with a submissive heart and obedient heart. The third friend of wisdom, and then we're going to go on to enemies. And the third friend of wisdom is one that's sometimes a little bit more challenging for us. The third friend of wisdom is the gift of parental guidance. And all those with teenagers said, amen. Verses eight and nine. My child, my son, my daughter, listen when your father corrects you. Do not neglect your mother's instruction because what you learn from them will crown you with grace and will be a chain of honor around your neck. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, so I'm not going to re-preach that sermon. But one of the sources of wisdom that God has given us is the generations that have gone before us. And a part of walking in wisdom is learning from them. Part of walking in wisdom as a parent of a child of any age is knowing how to impart wisdom in a way that is Appropriate. Ephesians 6 talks about that. And part of being a child of any age, growing or grown, including teenagers, is to know how to recognize wisdom that is coming your way and be able to apply it, even if the source is not always cool. Or the source doesn't know everything like you know everything. If you want to grow in wisdom, listen to those who are older than you. Listen to your grandparents, your great-grandparents. Read good biographies from history. Learn from them. Apply these things to your life. And if you do, you've begun to make wisdom your friend. Because in life, you need a few things to succeed. You need at least two. There's probably a whole other list you could add to this. But you need at least two things that Proverbs 1 shows us that you need to succeed. And this is the why make these things your friend. The first thing that you need is moral skill. That's called discipline. You just have to learn how to make good moral decisions in your life. In order to make good choices, you have to know how do you distinguish right from wrong. And the second thing that you need is you need mental discernment. Proverbs 1 calls this prudence. An ability to weigh out all of the options in front of you and see which one 
fits the situation and make a prudent or wise choice. So just like sailing. So the three friends that we've talked about will enhance these things in your life, starting young, layering wisdom into your life, approaching God with reverence and respect instead of being cavalier and learning to listen to the wisdom of generations who've gone before us. So these are the friends of wisdom. These are the things that will help wisdom come into our hearts. But wisdom also has a multitude of enemies that if we do not guard our hearts and become aware of them, can steal the things that God wants to build into your life. So wisdom has, at least in this chapter, five enemies, attitudes, approaches to life that will keep wisdom far away from you if you don't want to embrace it. So the five enemies of wisdom that we're going to fly through in this passage. The first enemy of wisdom is the moral misfit. The moral misfit. Proverbs chapter 110 says this. If sinners entice you, turn your back on them. Don't go along with them. Stay far away from their paths. They are rushing to commit evil deeds. Now, a proviso on this. That clearly, don't hear what the text is not saying. The text is not saying, ooh, if you bump into someone who is a sinner or has sin in their life... Turn your back on them, run far away from them. You know, you'd have to leave the world in order to do that, right? But there is a a type of person who is so committed to walking the paths of wickedness and so consumed in their life with making sure that you get roped into that, that they have actually become a negative influence on you. And in that case, Proverbs says, you need to turn your back on them. Don't go along with them. Stay far away from their paths as they rush in to commit evil deeds. Proverbs 1.17 says, they're like a bird. They're like a bird that sees a trap being set. So they know it's a trap, but yet they still can't help themselves and they still go right on into it. And it's like they just set an ambush for themselves. They're so morally off-center. They just can't but rush towards evil. Don't go along with them. Don't throw your lot in with them. Turn your back on them and run. These people are so thick, so unaware of their lack of morality, so dulled in their thinking and conscience that they cannot even identify something that's harmful to them and to others. They're like a bird who sees the trap, but just can't help itself from stepping in and being caught. They have no sense whatsoever. And yet they're always attempting, for whatever reason, to get people to come along with them and hang out with them and pursue all of the stupid things that they do. And so, friends, don't let yourself get caught in that trap. Some of you know people like this, and you think, ah, you know, it couldn't hurt to hang around with them for the whole weekend if we went up to that cabin. What what could possibly go wrong? Now, you're going to need to exercise wisdom because you might actually need to be a good influence on them. But you might actually need to exercise wisdom and say, "Mm, you know what, if I go along with that for this whole weekend, like, I'm just going to fall into old patterns and habits, and that's going to be destructive for me. You're going to need to be careful and especially 
when you're young. That's why the verse starts out by saying, my son or my daughter, be carefully aware of the moral influences of your friends. Because they might make decisions about stuff that's totally different framework than you. They might make decisions about what video games to play based on a completely different framework than you have. They might make choices about what's fun based on a totally different framework than you. And you might get sucked into that. They might make decisions about how much alcohol is safe to consume using a completely different matrix than you. Wisdom is being aware where there's danger and making a choice not to do something stupid. They can get themselves killed, but don't get dragged into their poor decision-making because they can be enemies of wisdom. So the first enemy of wisdom is that person who's so morally unaware that they cannot even see that they're walking down a path that's going to destroy them. The second of our five enemies of wisdom also gets caught in a trap of their own making. Look with me at verse 19. Verse 19 of Proverbs 1. Such is the fate of all those who are greedy. It robs them of life. Now, I have something here to help us understand this. And I warned Caitlin that she should not step on it while she was leading worship because that would be problematic and result in dancing of some variety. Um, now, this is a mouse trap. Actually, more specifically, this is a rat trap, larger than your average mouse trap. And so uh, some of you who have had uh, issues of this uh, know what these are for. Uh, this is uh, one of those non-humane kill-focused rat traps, the effective kind. But the big thing that I learned about traps is that it's kind of, you don't just put this out and sort of say, okay, this is, we're good. This is going to work for us now. It's actually fairly important how you bait the trap. Like you have to attract the rat to come or the mouse to come and get on this in some way. And so Dave and I were talking uh, before about peanut butter and his use of successful use of peanut butter uh, to, to try and get at some rats. But, you know, there's other things that you could put on here that might bait certain types of individuals. You know, let's say we could put on a penny. I'm going to put this on very carefully. I do not want any volunteers for this section of the message. Mm -hmm. So penny on there. And you look at it and you're like, it's a penny, Brad. I'm not enticed by a penny whatsoever. Who cares, you know? All right. What could we do? Maybe we could put, maybe we'll change currency. Maybe you're appealed by another currency. Uh, you know, this is worth more than a dollar. I like a dollar 33 probably. So if we put this on, you know, would this entice you for your target shopping trips later on this afternoon? You might not yet be enticed. Like, yeah, whatever. It's a buck. I'm not going to lose a finger, Brad, for a dollar. <clears throat> okay. Well, what about 10 bucks? If I put this on, and Jared, my son, was already scheming this morning about, he's like, Dad, I could rip it off quickly without you even knowing that it, and springing the trap. But I'm not going to have you do that. The question is, how much money would I have to actually put in here in order to entice you. 
What would that look like for you? Because we're all enticed by different types of things that have sort of this gravitational pull to us that we just kind of look at and go, ah, I'm, and, and we're, we're, I think I could do it. I could probably get away with that. I could, I could probably make that happen for me. And Proverbs says that there is something living inside each of our hearts, and it's called greed. And if we put a certain amount of money on there, it activates it in our hearts and in our lives. It's the right kind of bait that's going to draw us in. And the point here is that it's not actually the money that is the dangerous thing here. It's actually greed. Keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Greed is that unhealthy thing that's pulling you in and an unhealthy love of money that might cause you to do stupid things like put your finger in a rat trap. And that's why greed is the enemy of wisdom because greed begins to take over real estate in your soul and begins to actually influence and taint your decision-making capacity in unhelpful ways. That's what greed does. And that's why Jesus says in Luke 12, verse 15, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. And greed comes in so many subtle ways to us and tempts us to do things that otherwise we have very clear purpose and focus in our hearts. You know, one of the things that's interesting in our day and time is, you know, we live in a place in, in the world in which our real estate values have gone just crazy. And so it's possible for us to kind of look at that and go, oh, yeah, I'm just going to cash out and go, you know, live in like Port Hardy on Vancouver Island. But, and that might be wisdom for you. But one of the challenges is what if God's asked you to stay and plant yourself in this community and be faithful to the things that he's called you to do? And you know that you know that God's asked you to do that. And then we just put a massive house on here and a bunch of equity in it that's gone up through the result of nothing you've done whatsoever. And then suddenly you're like, now I'm tempted by this in some significant way. And so we just have to be, exercise wisdom that greed doesn't begin to influence decisions and that we actually make decisions with wisdom with a view of what God would have us to do. Because wise people know how much your home is worth, what kind of car you drive or don't drive is not the measure of success in your life. It goes back to the two fundamentals. Do you possess moral skill and mental discernment that can help guard you against being influenced by things like greed? So we've had our first two enemies of wisdom, the moral misfit and the greedy schemer. The third one that Proverbs introduces us to is the willful simpleton. Proverbs 122, how long, simpletons, will you insist on remaining being simple-minded? Come, listen to my counsel. I will share my heart with you and make you wise. I called to you often, but you wouldn't come. I reached out to you, you paid no attention. So I will laugh when you are in trouble and I will mock you when disaster overtakes you. When calamity overtakes you, 
Again, sailing language. Like a storm, when disaster engulfs you like a cyclone and anguish and distress overwhelm you. The willful simpleton. So this is not someone that's just simplicity or being simplistic. This is the person who is willfully, morally naive and chooses to remain so. They're just overly, intentionally simplistic in their view of life to the point that they do not believe that they need wisdom or wise counsel because they think they have it all figured out because things are simple enough for them to figure out all on their own. And that's actually why in Proverbs that calamity always overtakes the simpleton. Always. Because they just don't see it coming. Even though people have warned them and told them repeatedly, hey, you should make different choices about this. But they're lazy and complacent and they just didn't see anything coming. Oh, I should put aside some money so I can deal with unanticipated expenses. Nah, that sounds too complicated. And then they get caught in the storm. Or they get completely caught off guard when they get sucked in to doing something with friends and, and something bad happens. They're like, I just never pictured that would possibly happen with that group of people. That's a willful simpleton at work because they've just remained in a place of ignorance. And in Proverbs, ignorance is never bliss. Wisdom is always offered to the simpleton, but they always say, no, thank you, and politely keep moving with their lives. If someone's going to give you good advice about something and you know that it's good advice, take it. Put it into practice. Otherwise, you are playing the part of a willful simpleton. The fourth enemy of wisdom is a little bit less passive and more active in their resistance to instruction on wisdom. They don't just politely not accept it. They actively hate the person who gave it to them and wisdom itself. The fourth enemy of wisdom is the defiant and sinful and cynical, rather, mocker. Look at verse 29 of chapter 1. They hated knowledge and they chose not to fear the Lord. They rejected advice and they paid no attention when they were corrected. So therefore, they must eat the bitter fruit of living their own way. They will choke on their own schemes. They will get caught in a trap of their own making. If you are defiant and resistant and cynical regarding wisdom, then eventually that will catch up with you. And this is the last final enemy that perhaps is one that we are most susceptible to. And it's the morally insensitive or complacent fool. Look at verse 32. Proverbs says, simpletons turn away from wisdom to death and fools are destroyed by their own complacency. But all who listen to wisdom will live in peace, untroubled by fear of harm. See, for me, a lot of times, I'm not aware that the danger of complacency poses to my life. I'm, by temperament, an optimist. So I think, oh, it'll probably work out. We'll figure something out. And just kind of complacently move along with it. So many times, we tend to drift through life thinking, oh, yeah, that wisdom thing we talked about. I should probably get some of that. Well. 
you know, I'm kind of busy right now. I'll, I'll, I should get on that at some point in the future. And complacency sets in, and we never actually get around to layering and building wisdom into our lives. Perhaps the greatest enemy of wisdom isn't greed or defiant cynicism or willful simplicity or moral insensitivity. Maybe the greatest danger is actually just complacency. We just drift through our lives instead of choosing to embrace the path of wisdom. We'll finish with this picture of two sailboats by a painter, 19th century uh, American painter, Winslow uh, Homer. And these sailboats are headed in completely opposite directions. One's headed towards destruction in Winslow's series of paintings. And one's headed towards safe harbor. The one that's headed towards destruction is just fueled by complacency. It's moving along with the same wind that's actually influencing the opposite boat. Same waves, but the person at the helm is making a completely different direction as to where to point the boat, what destination to pursue. And the foundational choice here is who's at the helm, who's captaining the ship. And really, this is the heart of wisdom. Because for those who know and trust God, they have chosen to say, God is at the helm of my life. And so where he wants to steer my life, that's the pathway of wisdom that I want to follow. They've chosen to say, yep, Jesus is Lord of my heart, of my finances, of my time, of my future, of my family, of my relationships, of every area of life. And that is a decision of wisdom. And if you've never done that, that's a decision that you can make here today. There's a million decisions you'll make in your life that have absolutely no impact for all of eternity. But that decision, the decision to say, you know what, God, I've tried navigating life on my own. I'm done with that. I want to turn over the helm to you. That one choice will change everything for you. And I want to encourage you, if you've never done that, to make that today. And I'll pray with you in a few minutes and show you how. But for those who have made that choice and turned over the helm to God, think about your life. Are there areas of your life, what decisions that you have in front of you right now, conversations that need to happen? Some might be real simple that you need to exercise wisdom in. Some of you as students have been together with your siblings for the entire summer, and it's just fraying and breaking down as it would tend to do over the summer. You need to exercise wisdom to make it through the next couple weeks in the way that you talk to each other. Some situations you're facing might be incredibly complex, significant health challenges. What influences are you calling to bear to help you navigate the complex situations of your life? If it's wisdom, it means you're going to start early. You're going to walk in obedient reverence to the Lord and invite those who have more mileage than you do to speak into those situations in your life. If it's not wisdom, it's going to look like complacency. It's going to look like defiant cynicism in that area of your life. 
It's going to look like unhelpful simplicity or unbridled greed or moral insensitivity. And you're likely to bump up against those if you look deeply enough in your heart. I know I do in mine. And this is the real thing about wisdom is you can't just give someone a manual to memorize that will give you the right answer for every situation that you're going to face. You need to seek the source of wisdom. And I'll close with this thought as Chris and the team are going to come and lead us in a time of response. And we're going to add another block to our wall of wisdom. And that is this, that wisdom is not acquired simply by memorizing mechanical formulas. Wisdom is found through right relationships, a right relationship with God and a right relationship with people around you that you seek wisdom from and for. That first and primary relationship, like Wally talked about last week, is a vertical one. And that second relationship is the ones around you, spiritual friendship, inviting wisdom from others. And that's, again, why we have our prayer team available for you each and every week. And so I want to invite you to stand with me. I'm going to pray for you. And if you have an area of your life that you need to press in and ask God for wisdom for, then I want you to go over and make yourself available to the prayer team and say, just this is a situation I need wisdom. I don't need your personal advice, which is not what they're there for. They're there to ask the Lord for you and with you what it is that you need wisdom for. And so let's spend a few moments just pressing into God and asking him what his heart is for the places in our lives that we need to seek wisdom for. So God, we come to you in this place today. And maybe some of us are coming and wrestling with this notion of putting you at the helm of our lives for the first time. And you've been stirring and speaking, and maybe even you're here today and you've heard all that before. And like, yeah, yeah, whatever. But something today is different and that God is speaking to you in a unique and purposeful way and you want to respond to that. You would do that simply by praying a prayer and saying, God, I acknowledge that I need you. I acknowledge that I have things in my heart, in my life, things I have done, things I have left undone. The Bible calls that sin that are completely against you. And so I lay those down. I ask for your forgiveness and cleansing of my heart. What an incredible gift that God wants to give you today if you'll but receive it. And you just say, God, I thank you that you have done everything necessary to pay the penalty for my sin, that we've sung about that already today, by dying on the cross and by defeating sin and death, by rising again to life and ascending into heaven. And so you would say, God, I just want to be in right relationship with you. I acknowledge rightly that you are king and lord of my life and the whole universe and I'm not so I'm just taking myself out of that captain's seat and I want to put you there by faith you'd receive that and maybe for you you're here today and you can think about a specific area of your life that's just it's gone off course in some way or an area of your life that you need wisdom for. 
God wants to give it generously to you and not in a mechanistic kind of a read these set of rules and follow kind of way. He wants to give it to you through relationships, relationships with people around you that you know and trust and that are filled with the gift of wisdom that he's going to impart and right relationship with him. And so just even as we worship, you may need to spend time just saying, God, I need wisdom and you want to pray and not sing the words on the screen. Totally fine. You might need to kneel. You might need to just sit with your hands open as a posture of expressing physically to God, I need to be receptive to you in a fresh way today. Maybe you want to go and pray with someone. Have the courage to do that in this place today. Because there's so many ways you could choose to handle any of those situations. You and I need to handle them with wisdom. And God desires to pour it out. You don't have to go seeking and messing around with a whole bunch of other things. Seek wisdom and his kingdom first and all of these things will be added to you and so god we collectively and corporately just declare our sense of trust and confidence in you as our source of wisdom today we don't want to seek it from any other place but you and so we want to walk in faithful and responsive obedience to what it is that you tell us to do and so we pray this as our prayer and we're going to sing it as the cry of our hearts in the name of jesus who made this possible we pray say amen